Welcome to the Women's Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Sheridan House. We continue today in the series, God's Masterpiece, a study of women in the Bible. If you've missed any part of this series, you can find it and many others online at SheridanHouse.org. We hope you enjoy today's lesson. Amen. Well, it is great to be back with you all, and whether you are joining us by audio or visual or video or whatever, what are the things that you call those things? Who can know? But anyway, um, I'm just glad to see you, or if you're here live with us, it's just wonderful to be together, and we're doing the main thing, right? We'd love to be eating together, and wow, we're going to maybe get coffee next week. That sounds wonderful. But um, the point being, we're together studying the Word of God, and that is what we need desperately right now. We need His direction, don't we, as we go through these troubling times. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to look at the qualities that will make us more usable for God's sake for his kingdom's sake. How can we, what are the qualities that um, will help us be a better vessel for him, to be, um, to be more available to the potter's hand as we um, have been thinking about that song. So today, lesson three, we're gonna be talking about godly qualities. We're gonna be in Esther chapter two, starting in verse eight. So if you've got your Bibles with you or your Bible app or whatever, um, let's uh, turn, to uh, Esther chapter two. And we're gonna begin by talking about when humans step out of God's divine design, then what? (laughs) Let me say that again. When humans step out of God's divine design, then what? Because I don't know about you, but have you ever stepped out of God's divine design? Uh, Yeah, so have I, haven't we all? And so we're gonna look at how God dramatically will take some of those mistakes that we will, as human beings, uh, make in our lives and how he will turn them around for his divine design. A.B. Simpson said this, God is preparing his heroes, and when the opportunity comes, he will fit them into their places in a moment, and the world will still wonder where they came from. Isn't that good? That God is not going to be hindered and what he's gonna be doing and wants and desires to do. Now we spent the last two weeks talking about God's working even in secular situations. And it's important for us to really get that because we often stumble sometimes over, um, why would God allow this to happen to me? Or, Or why would God allow this to happen to her? And so we can kind of get stumbled with that thought. And so what we want to look at today over and over again, that this is such a theme in Esther, is for us to underscore that God works in all circumstances. And that's A on your outline. God uses all our circumstances. He uses all the things that happen to us, good and bad, for our benefit, and that's such a principle of scripture that we wanna wrap our minds around, especially in troubling times that we are in right now, that God will use every situation for his purposes in his glory. Great theme for the book that we're studying. God is in all of our circumstances. So if we say that, number one, does God then endorse ungodly choices? Does he endorse ungodly choices. Look with me to verse 8 
in the second chapter of Esther, it says this. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa in the citadel into the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who was in charge of all the women. Would God be in favor of a beauty pageant based on such surface things? Do you think he'd be in favor of that? Absolutely not. God's perfect purposes are for the sacred, uh, sacredness of marriage and for modesty, isn't it? And so for him to, to be in favor, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Let's bring all those sweet little things in here and have a little beauty pageant. Absolutely not. That does not fit God's wonderful, perfect, righteous character, does it? For the king to orchestrate having all these beautiful young virgins brought into the palace for him to choose would not be something that God would endorse. Never, never, no way. Instead, number two on your outline, God works even in our ungodly choices, even in our ungodly choices. God takes the evil design of the pagan uh, leadership, their horrific plan to parade these young virgins in front of the king and turn it into good, uses them to work his providential plan, even though it is totally contrary to something that God would endorse. He uses these things that happen to work his providential plan. Our moving out of the will of God creates painful circumstances in our lives. When we do that, when we step out, guess who gets hurt? You and me. When we make mistakes like that, it is us that, um, that have, we have, it's painful to us as well as other people's choices. But in God's grace and love, he uses even the painful situations for our benefit. You know, and we've said this over and over again, week after week, but Romans 8, 28, say it with me. God works all together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And an Old Testament verse along with that is Joseph in the Old Testament, Genesis 50, 20. He says this, what you intended to harm me, God intended for the good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. That's the NIV translation. But that's the same concept in the Old Testament, that God takes these things that are harmful and hurtful in our lives because we live in a wicked, fallen world, don't we? And so things are going to happen to us and the people around us. But God doesn't endorse it, but God uses them for his purposes to unfold. This evil plan of God's, uh, of the king's advisors that caused Esther to be placed in this horrific environment... God turned and used for his purposes to save his people. We'll talk about that in the up upcoming weeks. The beautiful tr truth here regarding God's love and grace is that he works mightily in spite of our foibles and bad choices of even those around us that we cannot control. God still uses them for his purposes because ultimately he has got a divine design, which is be on your outline. God has a divine design. Charles Spurgeon said this, there is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. He has a design. 
He has a plan for his beloved children. And we've talked uh, a few weeks ago about how he uses our hurts and problems to hone and beautify us for eternity, to prepare us for our true home, which is heaven. We're being honed and shaped and beautified to be fit for where we, we are going to go eternally. We are like sculptures, God carving away the, the rock and the stone and beginning to form more and more the beautiful sculpture. I love the print on the front of your book. Is she beautiful or what? That masterpiece, and if you notice, I don't know if you've, you've probably noticed, especially you artiste ladies, that behind her is a modern woman, sort of a, a you know vague look um, at her, but beautiful that God is shaping and carving away the ugly in our lives to create that sculpture. I don't know how, if any of you have been in uh, Venice, Italy, but, um, or Florence, Italy, and the, one of the most um, historic places in Florence is the um, art gallery that holds David, the Michelangelo's um, wonderful masterpiece, David. And as you're walking down the hall to get in there and look at it, and they have lights all on it, and it's just incredible to see. Um, as you're walking down the hall, there's something that's even more, almost in a way, more engaging than actually seeing, seeing the statue of King David, uh, of David, is these other Michelangelo um, sculptures along the side wall. One of them just really gripped Bob and I. We just almost stopped and had to stand there for a little bit. It was this big rock that Michelangelo had started carving away. The rest of the rock was still sitting there, but at the top of this uh, rock was this sculpture of somebody coming out of that rock, and they, they think that it was supposed to be a rendition of um, the Apostle Matthew. But showing this apostle popping out of that rock, and it's such a picture of us, isn't it? That God is carving away the rest of the rock and the stone so that we can come up and become his masterpieces. He's carving away all of the, quote, beauty pageants of our lives, unquote, he uses to carve the statue or work the clay to become the beautiful end product that he wants us to be, to glorify him. But be, so we're going to be looking at some of the qualities that made Esther so usable to God. And another interesting aspect to look at that we can so practically apply in our lives is this. What are the qualities of godly parents? What are the qualities of, God, of godly parents? And that's interesting because of Mordecai and his influence on Hadassah or Esther as we know her. Several of you have asked, why would Mordecai, why in the world would he allow his beloved foster daughter to be placed in this degrading situation of the parade of physical in a pagan harem? What was he thinking? <laughs> we want to ask. Well, let's take a look at that. Why would we... Um, why would he even consider it? Let's go back to verse 8, the end of it. It says this, Esther was also taken, pivotal word, 
into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Now, taken is a very pivotal word. In Hebrew, in the original language here, it could also mean taken by force. Taken by force. Remember, uh, King Ahasuerus was an absolute ruler. His edicts were carried out to the letter. And probably many of the young, beautiful virgins, quote unquote, were dragged kicking and screaming into this dubious, quote unquote, privilege of being uh, receiving a year's spa treatment in the harem so that they could be presented to the king. I don't think everybody said, oh, goody, let's just go at all. Do you? Absolutely not. And nor do I think that Mordecai would have been excited about this quote unquote opportunity for Hadassah or Esther as we know her. Scholars believe that those young women that were brought in from all across the Persian Empire at that time never saw their families again. Because once they had been brought before the king, they would just be sent back to the harem. And so most likely, we don't know that for a fact, but most likely, many, if not all of those girls remain there for the rest of their lives. Wow, amazing. We tend to look the, at this from a 21st century perspective, but um, when the king said all the beautiful virgins from the realm, that meant all, not just a few, not just who said, okay, yeah, I'd love to go. I'd like to go check out Persia, see what it's like. No. This was not something that they would have chosen. All this to say, I don't think that Mordecai had a choice. So I think he chose to, A, relinquish her into God's care, to leave her in God's hands and spare her life. Most likely, scholars believe, that disobedience to that edict would have likely been instant death for, es for Esther. If, they, if Mordecai said, no, 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 or Esther backed away, no, I don't want, want to go in there, or whatever, that it would have been an instant death for, for Esther. It's kind of similar. It reminds me of Jochebed. Do you remember Jochebed in Exodus? Remember she was the mother of Moses? And when the king or the pharaoh made an edict that every uh, young boy, male, would be killed at three years and younger, what did Jochebed do? She hid him. She put him in a basket and put him out uh, into the Nile River and what did she do? She released him into the care of God. I believe it's the same thing with Mordecai. I believe that he, you know, prayerfully let Esther go into this horrific situation that she was going to be in, just as Jochebed released Moses in his basket into the care of God. Look at his state of mind after he releases her talking about Mordecai, verse 11. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. He, you know, you can almost see him wringing his hands and saying, oh, I got to go, um, go in, uh, to that harem and see what's going on. Oh, Lord, and, and almost seeing him, you know, walking back and forth, parading back and forth, praying and, and committing it to the Lord, um, wondering what was going on with Esther. Reading between the line, I am sure that he was in deep prayer for his beloved foster daughter. 
asking God to place his protection over her, physically as well as emotionally, and most of all, spiritually, spiritually. Imagine the intrigue and difficulties of a young Jewish girl, most likely in her early teens, having to be exposed to the pagan practices that she would witness. Now remember, just beginning, uh, just to think about, even her food was different as a Jewish girl. And just imagine all of everything from dietary practices on up to the things that she was exposed to um, and having to fit in and figure it out. Again, so similar to Jochebed releasing her precious Moses into the wicked court of Pharaoh. Very similar. Can't you imagine the prayers of that mother's heart as she prayed for the protections of her son? Moms, grandmas here, beloved aunts and uncles, those of you who have children that you love and adore, isn't that where we are and should be as we release our beloved children and grandchildren, um, beloved nieces and nephews, whatever, into the, quote, Persian palace of this world. Wow. Every day, we should be walking front of the court of the harem, relinquishing our children to the care of our loving God. It's, it's always a comfort to me when um, I would be uneasy for my children going into a situation I was not terribly comfortable with. I remember the, the thing that was just so comforting to me was to remember that God was their father and loved them so much more than I could ever consider loving them. Wow. Um, <clears throat> so let's take for a, mo a moment, B, what is the job description of a parent or grandparent? What, is, what, do, what are we to do? Aunts and uncles, beloved children in your life, what are we to do? What are some keys to get us thinking about following in Mordecai's footsteps, he must have done an amazing job with Hadassah while she was home to have her become Queen Esther in all the character traits that we're going to look at just in just a moment. What were some of the keys to get us following in his footsteps? Again, reading between the lines, these things Mordecai must have successfully instilled in her as before she went into this pagan area in uh, the castle in the harem. How she rose above what she was exposed to and became such a stellar wo woman is um, we can thank Mordecai for what he had instilled in her life. First job description of a parent. Number one, to teach, to teach. Deuteronomy 6, 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your home and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Do you notice that every single position that we would put our bodies in is listed there, lying down, standing up, so forth. Um, I think God really wants us to get it. It is our responsibility to teach, to train. Not youth pastors, not Christian school teachers. Yes, they co-labor with us. But the main responsibility, according to that and many other verses through the Bible, is it is our responsibility as a family to train and teach. Don't you think Mordecai did that before he sent her out to the wolves? 
Don't you think he had instilled in her as she was growing up all the wonderful principles of God? Uh, we should use every situation to teach, good and bad. I'll never forget uh, one of the, the biggest hurricanes that hit us when the children were probably, um, I want to say high school, middle school age, was Hurricane Andrew. Remember Hurricane Andrew? Oh my goodness. And I remember the kids were young enough, they helped some, you know, bringing jugs in that I was filling with water and on and on it goes. They all, they helped out a great deal, but the whole time their eyes were just huge, wondering what in the world is going on here? <laughs> What's happening? Fearful. And I remember sitting down at dinner that night when we finally had everything prepared and the shutters were up and the jugs were filled and everything was done to the best of our ability to prepare for this incredible um, hurricane that was going to hit us. Um, I remember sitting, we sat down at dinner and we talked about how we were in God's hands no matter what happened. If our house blew down, we were in God's hands. If we were protected, we were in God's hands. And I think that was such an important principle for us to be teaching our children that I think Mordecai taught Esther as she was growing up. Um, it says in Psalm 78, verses 3 through 7, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. But the next generation must know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should not set their hope, um, that, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandment. Our responsibility uh, with, as women who have children in their lives, whether they're our own grandchildren, um, beloved children from uh, other family members, it is our responsibility to teach the glorious deeds of the Lord, as that psalm talks about. Next in the description, number two, to comfort. First, to teach. Next, number two, to comfort. Isaiah 66, 13 says this, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You know what? We live in times that are very, very difficult for children. And um, they are in a culture that was very different from our parents and grandparents. Do you remember this Norman Rockwell painting? I love that. And it's this little boy, you can see he's got this little pack on the ground there. He's clearly running away and he's maybe stopped to get a soda or something at the soda shop. And I love, you, you see that police officer looking down at him, kind of talking and, and the, the owner of the soda shop kind of hanging over with a smile on his face. And it's a, such a picture of that time, um, a little bit more than us, where the entire community sometimes would wrap around children and the training of it. Our children don't necessarily have that today. They are in a time of technology and shaming and on and on it goes. It's a very difficult time for children. And so we need to wrap around them. I need to, uh, when I listen to what the school is like and what our children have to deal with on a daily basis, it's truly sobering, isn't it? 
And so one of our roles is comfort. One of our roles is listening. One of our roles is coming around our children. And thinking about that Norman Rockwell painting of being around them and comforting them and listening and hearing some of the things that they're having to deal with in their lives. Our role is comfort. Um, can't you imagine Mordecai comforting and propping up Esther before she went into that horrific situation that she was about to go into? Number three, third thing that we need to do as parents is to be an example. Jesus himself in Matthew 18, two through six said this, and calling him, to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But here it is. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be thrown in the depths of the sea. That's some strong language from Jesus, isn't it? And what he was saying is, that we are to make sure that we're not causing children to stumble by our choices. We are to be very careful that our lives can be lived out without compromise before our children. We want to be careful that they don't stumble by our inconsistencies or our over-busyness even in the good things of our life. Are we being an example to our children? Uh, number four, to be consistent, to be consistent, Ephesians 6, 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. In other words, do not anger your children. I think one of the most dramatic ways to anger our children is inconsistency. One day say, no, you can't do that. And the next day say, oh, well, maybe it's okay. I'll never forget one time I was, um, do you remember um, Blockbuster? Okay, that was since this time, but, you know, still, whatever. And I remember going in to, to rent a, a movie, and there was a mom and her little girl, she must have been about five, uh, right in front of me in line, getting ready to pay for, for their um, movie they were renting. Wow, that dates us, doesn't it? But anyway, and um, as she was, they were, all along the way, I don't know if you remember this, just kind of like at the grocery store where they put all the cookies and the candy and the gum and all the wonderful things right along where you're going to go pay for all your groceries right there. Um, same with Blockbusters. They used to have all these wonderful goodies and toys and different things. And this little girl kept saying, Mommy, Mommy, can I have this? Can I have that? And Mom said, No, no, honey, and we're just going to get the movie and go home. And she said, well, Mommy, can I have that? No, no, honey, we're going to just get the movie and go on home quickly to Daddy and Brother. And, you know, just every five minutes she'd say, oh, Mommy, can I have that? And then went to my horror. Guess what she did? Are you ready? Yeah. She gets up to the thing and she goes, oh, okay, since you want it so badly. And they got the thing that the little girl kept asking for over and over again. And when she got up to the, uh, to the cashier, bought it for the little girl who have been nagging, nagging, nagging. Inconsistency. What are we doing <laughs> in front of our children? What are we, um, how are we not provoking them to anger? Inconsistency. Well, mommy, you bought that for me last time we were in Blockbusters, remember? And when we're inconsistent with our children, it causes anger. When a child doesn't know what to expect 
or when the rules constantly change on them, it can exasperate, as that verse says. They, uh, and these are just a drop in the bucket of the areas that we need to minister uh, to the children in our area. But may it help us to begin to think about that. Think about you know, how Mordecai must have made such an impact to have um, Esther grow up to be such an incredible young woman and how we need to be thinking through that process, those of us who have beloved children in our lives. So back to the story. What are some of the qualities of a godly woman? Look with me, chapter 2 again, 12 through 15. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being, are you ready for this, 12 months under the regulation for the women, since these were the regular periods of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, wow. When the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the heron to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. In the morning, she would return to the second harem in, custom, in the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go back into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now let me just hasten to say, <laughs> this is not a Hollywood beautiful romantic story. Imagine what those beautiful young virgins from all across the kingdom had to do. Let your imagination run wild because I think our imaginations cannot even begin to grasp the truth of what these young women were having to deal with. Wow. A. As we're thinking about that, what is the difference between inner beauty and physical beauty? Clearly, <laughs> what the emphasis was for these young women were physical beauty, beauty. And as we look at what God has to say about inner and outer beauty, let's first get a focus on verse 12, a whole year of spa treatment. We talked a little bit about that last week. That ain't all bad. I mean, six months of oil of myrrh. I don't know what that means, but I think we'd probably smell lovely after six months of that, don't you think? And then six months of spices and ointments. So in other words, what was the focus here on these young women? They were not being given geography lessons. Okay, you're from the India area, so let me tell you a little bit about Persia. Let's sit down here and have a lesson on geography. I don't think so. What was the focus? Physical beauty. Physical attraction, absolutely. Obviously, the total focus on surface outward appeal to the king. Wow. I'm sure they were taught and used every beauty and seduction known to that culture at that time. Again, this is not some lovely Hollywood love story. This is real. <laughs> this is a pagan kingdom. Wow. Not so dissimilar to our times, is it? Do you know that we spend billions of dollars a year with the cosmetic industry in our country today? 
especially in our area. <laughs> wow. Uh, and in our time, I remember reading a few years ago that in New York City, there was this um, trend where they would get their feet reshaped to fit the latest trend in shoes. Wow. I also read a couple years ago that uh, California, now they have a few more important things to deal with, like forest fires and all the things that are going on there. But in, at, at that, a couple years ago, one of the biggest graduation gifts to senior girls were changing their bodies around, <laughs> implants, um, even taking ribs out to make them look smaller. Do you remember that, reading that? Amazing, amazing. Uh, what a heartbreak. What a heartbreak when we think about the fact that we are beautifully and wonderfully made. And what a heartbreak when we think about it. I had a friend who went on a mission trip to a third world country and she came back and she said, you know, the thing that just broke my heart more than anything else is seeing families living in cardboard boxes. And we're spending billions of dollars on cosmetics and cosmetic surgery and having our feet reshaped to fit a shoe? Wow, wow. We all need to take a look at all this. And when I was studying this, you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to go into my bathroom, open my top drawer, and dump out all the makeup that was in there. Get rid of it all. Just, I'm, well, I'm done with all this. But um, I, uh, what, what, I, what we need to do is get uh, a focus on the fact that uh, surface is wrong. However, godliness is not synonymous with unkempt. Godliness is not synonymous with unkempt. We uh, live in a time where um, there's a lot available to, to us to be the best we can be without being overboard on it. Um, uh, and, but it, and it would be really not wise to not take advantage of it, would it? For us to do the best we can with what we have. Especially, we have a responsibility to represent the Lord in the best way to the world. Not overdone, not overkill, not spending billions of dollars or any of that, but we need to uh, represent the Lord in the best way that we can, modestly but beautifully, the best we can. The culture already thinks that Christians are strange, don't they? So here's an opportunity for us to present the best we can within reasonable uh, means. Uh, we need to be well-groomed and do the best we can, but not obsessive. That's what we want to learn from this. It's all about, number one, knowing the balance. Let's look at what God says about the subject. First Peter 3, you don't need to look it up, but you might want to jot it down. 3 verses 2 through 4. When they see your respectful and pure conduct... Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, wearing of gold, or putting on of jewelry, but let your adorning be the hidden person of your heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, I don't think that verse is saying, oh, don't worry about your hair. Just let it go, you know, all week long, no problem. Don't ever even dream of wearing a gold necklace 
or a fun hat, Ellie, or anything like that. Um, we, it's, that's not what it's saying. It's saying our primary focus needs to be on beauty that is real and lasting, that spills out from the inside. That's what that verse is saying. Real beauty comes from inside. And um, don't you know women like that? that they, they just have a radiance about them. They're beautiful. But then as you start picking through their, you know, their physical, you know, well, their no, her nose is a little big, her ears kind of stick out, and, you know, those kinds of things. And we see that it's the beauty from within that is shining out that makes a person beautiful. The contrast is also the same. There's a woman in my life that as you looked at her, when she walked in the room, you're like, wow, you know, she looks like Miss America. And just all of her, you know, her features were perfect. She had a perfect figure. Just everything about her was just perfect. But she was very unattractive. You know why? Because she had a critical spirit and a lack of joy. And so her face would show it. It was harsh and hard. Even though her features were perfect. It's an example of how the inside will flow out to... Um, to demonstrate our character on the inside. Back to that first Peter verse, number two. What is a quiet and gentle spirit? Now, that is not a reference to personality. I used to think when I was um, like a late teen or early 20s, I thought when, it's, when I read that verse for the first time, I think I, I read it and it said, gentle and quiet spirit. Does that mean that I need to walk around with a quiet? Hi, how are you today? And that's what I thought. And I thought, oh, man, I just don't fit that at all. And um, some of the most marvelous women I know have spunk, tenacity, and grit. Uh, it has to do with inside, gentle, and quiet. It's not about walking around. No, it's inside. And what is the inside? What is the inside? It comes from, A, on your outline, a piece with God, a peace with God. He's in control. I remember when Roby was a teenager, he said, you know what, Mom? It's kind of like, you know, when you become a Christian, it's like you're handing him the remote control of your life. And isn't that good? That's exactly what it is. And when we give the remote control of our life to God and we have a peace with him, then it helps us to have a quiet and gentle spirit. Wow. Remembering that he is shaping the clay of our lives as he divinely designs us, even in the difficulty, difficult times in our life, as we've been talking about. And that leads, first peace with God, B, it leads to peace with self. Peace with self. When I have a peace with God, it's okay to be okay with me. Now, I think we're all really quick to say, yeah, I'm not really good at this area, and that's okay. But I think it's also okay to say, you know what? God has given me an ability to do such and such. It's a God-given thing. And so I think that it's very important for us not to be prideful, but to be aware that God has a divine design for each of us. He's given us abilities. He's given us gifts to do what we're supposed to do. Excuse me. So peace in those two. Peace with God, peace with self leads to see peace with others. When we have a peace with God in ourselves, it frees us to be focused on other people. One of the most loving women 
I have ever known. One of my mentors was a lady who lived in Dade County. She's in heaven now. Her name was Corbell Morgan. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that name. But I, the thing about Corbell that was just so engaging was that she had such a peace with God, such a peace with herself, that that freed her up to love everybody around her. She loved the women around her so beautifully that they loved her right back. She, she, she would walk into a room and, and, and she would just radiate love and acceptance and joy into the lives of other people. If we are at peace with God and ourselves, we can be quick to acknowledge that we are in the wrong and always determined to be, rather than being always determined to be right. We can put others' needs first, not scrapping to get ours met. You know, I need to get in there and I need to make sure that everybody knows what I need and want because if I don't take care of me, nobody's going to take care of me. That's what our culture says, isn't it? That's contrary to a gentle and quiet spirit. At peace with God, at peace with ourselves, leads to at peace with other people. Women who are all about me, um, you can bet they are not at peace in these uh, very important areas. First, gentle um, area that we talked about, not having to prove myself, no personal agenda, quiet, relying on God to give us a quietness, not scurrying around trying to fix everything. These are the things that Esther must have possessed for, she was, for her to be described as she was described in this passage of scripture. We will learn more and more with every passing day as we look at her life. But before we look at her specific qualities, let's take a moment and consider, be on your outline, what are the general qualities in a woman's life? What are the general qualities of a woman? We think about how God designed us in his definition of gentle and quiet. We need to gratefully remember that God designed us in a very unique and beautiful way. We should relish and enjoy the dignity and honor of being a woman. Unfortunately, in our culture, we lose sight of what God intended us to be. And we, we think sometimes that we're supposed to be brainless beauties like those um, beautiful virgins from across the, uh, the kingdom, or male wannabes. That's not what God intended for us, is it? Let's take a look. God bestowed upon us certain qualities that um, no other creation possess in the same way. First one, number one, we have intuition. We have intuition. That's the ability to see beyond the surface for a situation and evaluate. Okay, this looks this way, but you know what? I notice such and such, and I think this is what's really going on. God has given us as women intuition. Victor Hugo, I don't know that he's even a Christian, but he said this, men have sight, women have insight. I love that. So true, isn't it? Number two, we have endurance. We have endurance, the, the um, incredible ability to handle pain and persevere. Guess what? Do you think we're prepared for childbirth, child rearing, all those things? Uh, part of that is that we, he's given us an ability to persevere uh, in times of difficulty, have endurance, not only physical, but emotionally. And again, I think that comes out so often in the rearing of children. Goodness sake, we certainly need endurance for that, don't we? <laughs> Emotional endurance. I love, you know, when I think about early America 
and you think about the pioneers that went across the country in covered wagons. And I think about those pioneer women, and I just have such respect for them, thinking about what their life was like in going out west to, to uh, develop new settlements and so forth. Wow. And also, um, some of you know, I'm really hooked on reading about Amish people. And Bob and I had the privilege of speaking in a church in Ohio, which was right on the outskirts of um, Amish world. And I would, we were driving along, uh, getting to the church, and here comes a buggy, a horse and buggy, with an Amish woman sitting in it. I was just blown away. But you know what I love about them is they, going back to pioneer days, they live simply, and they work hard, and, and they have endurance. Wow. Number three, third quality of a woman. We have emotion. We have the ability to nail down feelings and to express them. Wow, you look a little sad today. Are you okay? We sense that in each other. We sense that in people around us. We, we have a, a, an understanding of emotion because guess what? We have emotion, don't we? <laughs> Absolutely. Number four, as women, we have a vulnerability. We can express weakness and ask for help. You know, I'm really struggling in this area. Could you help me with this? Could you pray for me in that? And we have an ability to be vulnerable with each other. God intends for us to glory in and enjoy our gender, our femininity, the, the, those qualities that we've just talked about and many, many more as women. He wants us to enjoy that and to be the best we can be. Not only the good innate qualities, but godly qualities like Esther possessed. And let's take a look at those. See on your outline, what were uh, Esther's specific qualities? First of all, number one, she had a graceful, elegant charm. Look at verse nine. And the young woman pleased him, talking about Haggai, the, um, the one that was in charge of the women pleased him and won his favor. Now the word pleased him in Hebrew actually means lifted up grace before his face. Isn't that a beautiful expression? Lifted up grace before her, his face. And again, thinking about young Esther coming in from the Jewish community into this pagan world and that she was able to lift up her face in grace before him. Wow. Uh, remember that she would was in a situation that she would have never chosen for her life in a pagan harem, but she doesn't pout and make life miserable for everybody else. I am just not happy here. This is awful. I want to go back home. There's none of that in her. She lifted up grace uh, and pleased him, it says, and won his favor. Obviously, she was in peace with God, probably understood that he was in control, and so she didn't fight her circumstances. Because of her attitude, look at the response of the man in charge. Look at the second part of verse 9. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace to help her out, apparently, and advance her and her young women to the best part of the harem. Again, we begin to see God's hand of sovereignty moving in the life of Esther who had clearly a peace with him. Once again, we see God's hand in her life. Next quality she had, had restraint and control. And we will see a lot of this 
later on as we move through this story here. But look at verse uh, 10, the first part of it. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred. She had told no one. Now, can you imagine how hard that would be for her not to say, excuse me, you know, I, I'm Jewish and we Jews don't eat pork. We don't do this. We don't do that. It would have been very difficult for her, but she did not reveal her background. She did not make known her people or her kindred. It speaks of verbal restraint, keeping her mouth shut. Why? Number three, she had a teachable spirit. Verse 10, the second part of it says, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And then also in verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. She was willing to listen and to learn at somebody's feet. I'll never forget, uh, Bob and I were doing a, a marriage conference and at the end of a sun Sunday morning, he just felt led to say, you know what, if you, after you've been in this conference all weekend, if you would like to rededicate your marriage to the Lord, why don't you come on up and, and come back to the altar and together and just rededicate your marriage to God. And I'll never forget, here from the back came this old couple. He was in a walker. She was helping him along. And when he, they got up there, we said, oh my goodness, this is amazing. How long have you been married? Over 50 years. And they were rededicating their marriage. And um, we said, wow, we we're just so blown away by it. And he said, you're never too old to learn. We always need to learn. We always need to have, going back to what we're talking about, a teachable spirit. Wow. Do we have that kind of teachable spirit. Number four, she had modesty and authenticity. Look at verses 13 through 15. When the young women went into the king in this way, wow, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. In the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgez the king's eunuch, who was in charge of all the concubines. She would not go into the king again. We read this earlier. Uh, unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Wow. When the term came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of all the women, advised. Listen to this. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Now, can you imagine <laughs> the task of winning favor with the other virgins in the harem or some of the other leadership that she was exposed to? Wow. And yet that is the kind of spirit she had, modesty and authenticity that other people were drawn to her right away. You know, she was given a card, uh, uh, you know, spend however much you want at Macy's. Or maybe not Macy's. What would be even bigger than that? Neiman Marcus, Bloomingdale, on and on it goes. I mean, she was given carte blanche. Go for it. 
take whatever you want. Goodness sake, down in the, the cellar, we've got all kinds of gold and, you know, just help yourself, just pour it on. And what did she do? Only took what he suggested. Wow. Asked for nothing but what was recommended to her. Number five, she had a winsomeness. Look at verse, uh, the end of verse 15 and through 17. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tabeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Winsome, winsomeness. Winsomeness um, is described as, the dictionary calls it, winning appearance or manner, pleasing and attractive. Even in this competitive heathen setting, all were attracted to her, the verse says. Regardless of circumstances that she found herself in, she won everybody's favor, and of course the king. How about you and me? Are we, when we're about out there, are we winsome in all situations? I mean, are we winsome in all situations? That's all I'm going to say. Number six. Respect for authority, verses 18 through 20. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Uh, now, many, now when the virgins were gathered together again, the second time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. And here we go again, verse 20. We just read it. Esther did not make known her kindred or her, or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In other words, she's now queen of the realm. And still, she's heeding the advice of Mordecai, her adopted father still submitting to Mordecai, even though she was now elevated to queen, unspoiled by success, still available to counsel. Wow. Um, Charles Swindoll said this, yet here we see Esther, even in becoming the queen in the land, remembering the wisdom of her guardian and willingly considering his counsel. In summary, what an amazing woman. And we see why God was able to weave the, uh, the, the web of time. We, we see God able to use her in mighty ways. We begin to see why God used her to begin to see his divine design unfolding in her, in her life. We can be the same. Whatever God has for us to do, if we ask God to begin and continue to make us women with character, like that of Esther's, to make us usable to him by yielding to the potter's hand for the molding and shaping the sculpting. Sometimes painful, sometimes glorious. But are we willing to submit to that? Asking him to make us um, discontent with the superficial and give us a longing for the deeper spiritual things, trusting him to control the circumstances that we are in, especially right now. Are we in difficult times? Are we in times of unrest and just 
things that we don't understand what's happening. Absolutely. What a time. I can't imagine a more likely place to keep our focus than right now, what we are going through. We can blossom in our circumstances as well. If Esther, this young, sweet, protected Jewish girl, could flourish in a heathen harem, can we not, if we trust God, flourish and blossom in our circumstances as we trust God? Absolutely. For previous lessons or other resources, please visit sharedinhouse.org or call us at 954-583-1552. We hope you can join us again next week.